Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to, for coming here tonight to another one of our Wentworth group. It's becoming more like fireside chats, I think, <laughs> but the setting we have in the pub, I think it's probably most appropriate, although it's a bit gory at the back of us. But nevertheless, and maybe that, that, that gore might flow a little bit as we move through uh, the discussion tonight. But it's a great pleasure that, uh, that I'm able to bring together, uh, as a member of the Wentworth group, uh, both Rob uh, and Rachel. Uh, I've known Rob for, for some time, before he entered a uh, member of parliament, um, because we got introduced in a rather strange way. We, in 2003, I think, we both wrote articles in the Environmental Planning and Law Journal, and they were published one, one after another, but we didn't know that we were actually writing uh, on the, virtually the same topic. Uh, I, I just found Rob's articles with, with Zeta Lippmann just so, so much more interesting than mine, of course. Um, <laughs> and, and the reason for that, there's a very, a very good reason for that, and that is that Rob and, and Zeta, in, that, in their article, really were able to look at scenarios of change. Uh, and I think that that showed to me that in, in Rob we have, uh, uh, at that time as an academic lawyer, but now as an MP, somebody who can think outside the square and not think in terms of just narrow, particular ways things function, but to able to broaden out one's understanding uh, of the nature of change and particularly in relationship to our coast. So, uh, Rob and I struck up a friendship then, and uh, uh, as he's moved into Parliament, now Parliamentary Secretary for Renewable Energy, uh, he's uh, obtaining more and more power and influence uh, over the, the way we, we operate in this state, and I'm delighted that he's here tonight. Now, Rachel um, is also somebody I know, but per firstly through her father, because her father was a Professor of Geography at the University of New England. Uh, and so I've known, known Rachel through, first through the father, but more importantly, um, Rachel has, has been a young professional uh, with the Wentworth Group Masterclass. Uh, and just briefly, the Wentworth Group has this masterclass every year in which we invite uh, PhD scholars uh, and young professionals to join us for, for a few days uh, and discuss many issues of science and public policy. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to have one of our members of the, that masterclass with, with us tonight, Rachel. So thanks very much uh, for that. And as uh, Patrick indicated, Rachel's particular role with, with, the, with the EDO. Now, the topic, uh, as Patrick's indicated, is, is, is one that is not just linked to coast, although we're going to use a lot of coastal examples tonight. Uh, and, but it's more broader than that because we're looking at this dilemma that we have as a society when public and private property collides. And as a, as a nation, we're a nation of mixture between the private property interest and how that's evolved and our interest in the public domain, the public good. And we've seen in, in Australia over now two centuries how that has evolved and has created problems for public policy. And we're going to touch on that uh, and use the beach and the coast as an example, but we can broaden that out, of course. We also know that in other parts of the world where you have the same sort of problems, and particularly in federated states like the United States, how they have tried to address such a, such a, uh, a, 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 such a problem. For example... Uh, it's estimated in the US 
over the next 60 years that one in four coastal properties within 500 feet, they use the old feet measure, within 500 feet of the current shoreline will be lost. One in four. There's thousands, estimated thousands of properties will be lost in the next 60 years, partly as a result of the, current, of the recurrence of, of hurricanes and storm surges, but also uh, as sea level rises. So those sorts of estimates uh, that the US are confronting, how are they handling it? Well, one of the ways in, when they're meeting this private versus public uh, conflict is to use the public trust doctrine. So we're going to touch on how the public trust doctrine works uh, and how it may work in Australia, but what the consequences of it would be if we applied the public trust doctrine, particularly to coastal areas. So the order which we're going to speak tonight is that I'm going to ask Rob to, to lead off uh, followed by, by Rachel, and then I'll become a little bit more specific uh, with respect to how the public trust doctrine might work on our beaches. Uh, and then we're going to have a, a little conversation amongst each other and see if we've got any questions for each other. Uh, and then we'll open it up uh, for, for general questions. So we're scheduled to be out of here uh, by about 10 to 5 to 8, something of that order. Okay. Well, Rob... I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Oh, well, thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, and thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I suppose I've got 10 minutes to talk, and I want to talk about three things uh, in relation to uh, this seemingly intractable, intractable, that word, intractable problem um, or conflict between uh, private property on the one hand and the public interest on the other. Uh, and I want to do so by referring to one particular writer who I think has developed a really useful typology for looking at these problems, and you can apply it to any of the problems that we face in New South Wales or in Australia. And just to give you, I guess, a, a, a basis of where we see these conflicts manifesting themselves, firstly, in Australia, we've got much higher growth rates, population growth rates, than in many other parts of the OECD. So we're seeing conflicts over land use much more than in many of our competitor nations. Uh, and where we see those conflicts, where they bubble to the surface, is often where they come into conflict with issues important to our culture. Uh, there was a writer, a, a sort of popular uh, a demographer called Bernard Salt, who talked about three big phases in Australian growth and development uh, and, uh, and talked about uh, the bush, uh, the burbs and the beach and that these three places to live have seared themselves on, on our identity. And so you see that when land use conflicts around the bush, a good example would be coal seam gas development and agriculture, uh, or uh, the burbs, and the example there is urban consolidation in the middle ring suburbs of Sydney or Melbourne, for example, uh, or the beach, and that might be where there's development on beachfronts. Uh, there's one in my community up in Pitwater of, of Currawong when that was uh, uh, subject to um, development proposals, uh, down in Wollongong, Sandon Point, uh, th those sorts of issues where uh, a big part, or Catherine Hill Bay is another one, where there have been... Uh, contests between the public interest and private property in, e in any of those areas that are important to our culture, uh, we see the conflicts coming to the fore. Now, as I mentioned, there's, there's those two ideas of 
private property and public interest. And the writer I was going to refer to is a bloke called Patrick McCausland, who was a professor of law at Birkbeck College in London for many, many years. And he looked at these things as as ideologies. He said there was an ideology of private property, an ideology of the public interest. And he said that the battleground in which they were contested upon was, the, was public participation. And so he called these three ideologies underpinning our laws of land use planning. So I want to look at each of those separately, and I think that will provide us with a really useful way of trying to look at land use conflicts and see the big picture forces behind those conflicts which will help us resolve them. The first is private property. Now, uh, when we're talking about private property, really we're talking about, uh, we're talking about real property. There are two species of, of property, uh, two separation, two categories, real property and personal property. Real property refers to in rem property, which is Latin for thing. It's real in the sense that uh, it, you can dig it up, you can submerge it, you can build on it, you can blow it up, but at the end of the day, uh, there it is. It's real. Uh, whereas other types of property, personal property, may be intangible or it may be compensated for in different ways. Land, however, exists. So real property uh, also includes the, the things fixed to it by more than their own weight. Then there are animals who walk across it and water that runs off it, but that gets all a bit, more comp a bit too complex. But in simple terms, real property is land and the fixtures on it. Now, when we look at land and the fixtures on it, uh, we then look at, well, uh, what, what are the rights of the people who, who express ownership of that, that land? Uh, those people are called tenants, and I think that's quite instructive because tenants, I think, points to the fact uh, that in our temporal condition, ultimately, we can only ever own land for as long as we live, uh, that the land continues after we go. Uh, land cannot be held in perpetuity. In fact, it would make a nonsense of land because if it was held in perpetuity, then it couldn't, it, you wouldn't be able to sell it. And if you couldn't sell it, you wouldn't really own it. Uh, and, uh, but I think the, the idea of tenant, uh, and we're, people who have an interest in land are described as tenants, uh, and the, the, the ownership that they have is called an estate in land. That's where you get real estate. And there are different types of estate. There's a state in fee tail or, or a life estate, uh, a leasehold estate, or an estate in fee simple, which is what we think of when we think of the ordinary, say, suburban house that is owned uh, on the beachfront or in the suburbs or wherever it might be, uh, that it's held in fee simple, which is really the highest form of ownership that you can have uh, as, as a private individual. Now, when, we, when lawyers talk about property, we like to talk about uh, property not as... Uh, the community sometimes likes to talk about uh, private property ownership, uh, but more accurately, lawyers like to talk about it in terms of private property rights because, as I mentioned, we're, we're tenants. We can't really own the land. We can have rights over the use of that land. And there are three main rights... It talked about as a bundle of rights, but there are three main rights. There's a right uh, to exclude, to exclude other people from your land. Uh, there's a right to, uh, to transfer, to sell it, uh, to, to crystallise the value, the latent value in the land by choosing when you want to sell it or if you want to give it to someone or how you want to sell it. Uh, and then finally, the right to, uh, to possess it and to use it uh, for, for whatever purposes you want. But it's very 
important to remember that, that's, that those rights are, are limited and they're limited because of the public interest. So I'll take each of them in turn uh, in, in, in uh, relation to the, the right to exclude. Well, straight away, if, uh, if someone wants to dig up some minerals that they have a licence for under your property, uh, yes, they need to get your permission. If they can't get your permission, there are uh, opportunities and there have been long opportunities for them to go to the courts and get an order to access your land. Uh, if a developer, for example, wants to uh, have access to your land to build on his or her block next to you, uh, he can or she can try and uh, negotiate access to your property, but if you don't want to give it to them, again, they can go to a court and get a, an order uh, authorising a limited access to your property. So straight away, the right to exclude is not absolute. Then you go to the right to transfer. Well, when you want to transfer your land, you have to pay taxes on that, uh, and you also there's certain disclosures that you have to make. So even there, the law uh, has come in over the top of those, those rights to say uh, how you can exercise them. The final one is perhaps the one that's, that's fought over the most, and that's the uses to which you can put your land. Uh, if you want to change the use of your land or or uh, use it more intensively, uh, then, of course, society is going to step in and have a view as to whether you can do that or not, which points to the second of these ideologies that Patrick McCausland talked about, which was this ideology of public interest. And it's really, really important. I guess the nub of what I want to get across tonight is that private property exists because, according to legal theory, it's it's in the public interest for it to exist. So when you go back to uh, legal thinkers like John Locke, John Locke would say, uh, sort of an 18th century legal uh, thinker, uh, would say that the value of private property and why we need private property is that private property mixed with the labour of the person with rights of ownership over that property equals a good outcome for the community. So if you own property and use that property... Uh, that will unlock wealth, that'll create jobs, that'll be good for society and it'll enrich the individual and give you all sorts of opportunities. That's the theory and that is why private property has been protected and respected. Uh, Jeremy Bentham went one further. He said property and law uh, are born together and die together, uh, that private property doesn't exist without the law uh, and that the two have a symbiotic relationship it's very important to realise, however, that the reason that private property exists is not because it's important per se. Uh, the legal theory behind its existence is it's important because it's in the public interest. And that's the whole reason to have it, because the public interest is served by having this, this construct of private property. Now, uh, that's been developed. Uh, there were other thinkers like Ricardo and, more, and, and then toward, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, a bloke called uh, uh, Henry George said, well, hang on, we need to force owners to use their land productively. It's not enough for that to be the legal theory, but if, if you've got an absentee landlord or a, or a squatter or someone who, who owns this uh, squatter in the old sense... Uh, someone who's got this vast tract of land and isn't using it for the benefit uh, of society, well, then they should be required uh, or encouraged to, to divest themselves of it so someone else can, can use this, 
this resource productively. So they came up with those ideas of land taxation to, to try and force people to put their land to the highest and best use. So again, the idea that private property is important because it serves the public interest to exist. Where that reached its logical conclusion was, of course, in the development of planning laws, where the public interest was very much that, uh, uh, at the time, there were real health concerns about overcrowding in, in areas of Sydney like the rocks nearby. Uh, there was outbreaks of the bubonic plague and so forth. And, uh, and the authorities were saying, the public interest requires us to plan how people use their land in the cities. So an overlay of law was created to tell people how they could and could not use uh, their private property. W once again, in the public interest. The public interest has always conditioned our use of private property and always will. Uh, and that is where the tension lies. Of course, generally, the two things have been allies. Generally, uh, the, the idea of private property and the idea of public interest have got along very well because the public interest has generally uh, throughout history been to encourage development, to encourage uh, the exploitation of resources, to encourage all these sorts of things, which has been in the interests of private property holders as well. However, as suburbs developed and then as an environmental consciousness developed, there started to be some cleavages between the interests of private property owners uh, and the public interest. Uh, a good example is in the suburbs of Sydney, where uh, you might, as a property owner, uh, you, two property owners might have identical rights uh, over their use of the property, but they might have entirely different interests. So, for example, a, a developer uh, might buy a block of land and want to develop it for its highest and best use, uh, but the family next door might just want to live in their house for the next 20 years and not see very much change at all. They've got similar rights, but entirely different interests as to uh, how to use that land. So where does the public interest uh, lie in those circumstances? With the uh, 20 years ago this year, the, with the installation of the idea of ecologically sustainable development, suddenly uh, the idea of growth at any cost has been, as a matter of law and policy in the development, uh, in the development of law and policy across all Australian jurisdictions, suddenly the idea of growth at any cost has been challenged by this idea that, no, we, we do want growth, we do want development, but we want a particular type of development, and that's development that is ecologically sustainable. Uh, and so that has, once again, ecologically sustainable development and the interests of uh, uh, holders of rights over private property can clash as well. And that is why this third element that I very briefly raised, and I know my time is just about up, uh, this idea of public participation is the ground, is the battlefield where these two conflicting sources of law uh, can fight it out. And it's really important, and uh, you'll see that this with the release just uh, on the weekend of a green paper into a new planning system for the state, where it's really important that there be opportunities for there to be genuine public participation, because that is where, uh, that is, if you like, the, the chaotic and necessarily chaotic battleground where these, these arguments are sorted out. But in, in all of this, I guess I assert my fundamental uh, premise 
this evening, which is private property rights are very important. Uh, I think they are very important. But we need to recognise they are important not per se. They are important because of the social benefit they provide to the community. If private property rights are not providing a general public benefit, if they're not in the public interest, then we have a problem. And we need to ensure always that that balance and the very reason we have private property rights is respected. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rachel, what's, Thank your, you. Con what's your contribution? Thank you. I'm extremely glad that Rob has set the scene so beautifully in terms of the technicalities of property law and the philosophical position there. I, I wish everyone had such a sophisticated understanding of the links between public interest and private property, but unfortunately, that's not so in my experience. And that's what I'd like to talk about. First, I'll start with a confession. Many years ago, when I was at law school, my least favourite subject was property law. As a naive undergraduate who didn't own any property, I thought conveyancing was just so much paperwork, and I thought property rights simply just obviously would cause way more problems than they'd solve. So you can imagine my surprise slash horror when I later got my dream job doing public interest environmental law at EDO when I came across property rights in every damn subject I looked at. <laughs> we do it in coastal law, of course. All our, our work on coastal reform, it's come up. In water law, it's all about water rights and, and how we can get the environment to have a quasi-water right in order to use itself. In native vegetation law is probably where I first came across the more extreme property rights movement. I remember I was a little surprised to read submissions that actually quote the Magna Carta. So while I am an imperfect student of property law and I totally expect to be corrected by Rob and Bruce at least once or twice this evening, I'm forced to think about property rights a lot as a public interest environmental lawyer. So when Bruce asked me to talk tonight, I had a bit of a think about this issue and a very strange vision came to me that I would like to share with you. Picture, if you will, a beach, a beautiful Australian beach. Standing on this beach is Bruce Tom, <laughs> champion of the public trust doctrine, waving his standard high. In Bruce's camp, he will, as I'm sure he'll tell you shortly, he has marshalled some compelling arguments. The public trust doctrine is used successfully in the United States. There are academics in Australia who have referred to the doctrine as submerged or sleeping, such as Jerry Bates, so not quite dead. The court, Justice Steen, for example, has used the language of the public trust in judgments, if not the specific doctrine itself. And similarly, legislation borrows the language of public interest and public trust all the time. But wait, a little way down the beach, over here, we have the private landholder beachfront owner. In their back pocket, they have a copy of the Magna Carta rolled tightly, and now we have a standoff. It's historic doctrines at 10 paces. We have the public interest, we have private rights. 
let's pause our scene for a minute and explore how this currently can play out in the broader natural resources context. If we leave the beach, we go up the catchment a little bit to a beautiful stand of forest with a fence running through it. On one side that happens to be state forest, an individual decides to climb up a tree and chain themselves to the tree. Not Bruce Tom, isn't it? This isn't Bruce. <laughs> this is a different one. On the other side of the fence... Oh, sorry, this, this first individual has climbed up the tree. They think that it is in the public interest for that tree to stay where it is so it can store carbon, support biodiversity, it can stabilise the soil on the hillside and it can be part of the water cycle. Over the fence, it's a private property. A landholder decides to climb a tree, sit on a platform and live there for a couple of weeks, protesting about native vegetation laws that say he cannot clear that tree, i.e. he cannot do what he wants with his own property. Both of these characters... Um, <clears throat> well, the behaviour of both of these characters may be seen as, by the broader community as a bit fruity, but they have things in common. They both have valid beliefs and arguments. They both take the same action and they're both protesting against laws. What's the difference here? The difference is in treatment. Our public interest offender climbs down from the tree and is arrested for trespass, obstructing forestry operations and is off to the local court. Our private landholder climbs down from the tree, is sympathised with and gets to take their case to the High Court. But let us return to the beach. As our friends in the trees show us, there are power imbalances in the current private interest public property debate. So now from our beach, we look out to sea as well as some dark, threatening clouds that could produce a one-in-100-year flood event with serious coastal erosion, Bruce, there is also the latest fleet of the all-conquering Navy, i.e. the state, as represented by legislation. Like many invading armies, legislation, Captain Statute shakes hands with the medieval doctrines on the beach, embraces, adopts, subsumes elements of each, knowing that in reality the legislation could obliterate both. At this point, the common law public trust doctrine takes refuge in a nearby rock pool, submerged, as Bates would say. This leaves on the beach the private property owner versus the state, and this is often how the, the issue is seen. In this standoff, it's the state who's supposed to represent regulation for the public good, Having borrowed the language of public interest, public trust, let's have a look at how this is going. At a Commonwealth level, the Commonwealth has got committees chaired by eminent professors on climate change and coastal policy. They've had inquiries, they've had reports, but there's no mandate in the Constitution to protect the coast, so there's no legislative action at a Commonwealth level. Let's look at the state. Anyone who's analysed... New South Wales coastal law or ever had a cup of coffee with Bruce Tom can tell you there is a plethora of laws, policies, regulations that apply to the coast. Now some of these instruments have objects to protect public access, to protect public infrastructure and deal with natural hazards. However, recent reforms have shown the state is not really a champion of the public good. 
for example, specific coastal protections by a former state government were overridden to fast-track major projects. Even legislative reforms to deal with hazard events and sea level rise saw a stepping back of the state from responsibility in emergencies. If we assume part of our little beach scene here is National Park, then there surely is some legislation, the clearest example of legislation, where land is protected for the common good. But if we look at that, no. <coughs> Legislative reform in re recent years has resulted in a privatisation of national parks through commercial leasing. And even more recently, it's put the actions of private individuals over public peaceful enjoyment of public places by allowing shooting in our parks. So that leaves us with local government, poor local government. Some councils are innovative. They want to map inundation. They want to talk to their communities about it. Others, such as I believe Gosford, the councillors recently decided to remove sea level rise information from the certificates to prospective landowners. EDO recently, or a few years ago now, did an audit of coastal laws and found very few even mention climate change, sea level rise, inundation, flooding, and scant guidance is given to local councils. So what's the reason for this overly complex and arguably ineffective system? In my opinion, it's because the overwhelming policy driver is liability, liability, liability. The agenda is driven by those who can afford to litigate not by those who are in caravan parks or traditional owners whose lands are vulnerable to sea level rise. So the fundamental question for me tonight is who speaks for the beach? Who defends the public interest? The short answer in terms of who, it's all the amazing members of the community who need community access through the planning laws that Rob was mentioning. It's those members of the community who come to EDO every day to learn more about the law, to learn how they can protect the places that not just Greenies but all Australians love. And it's people like Bruce. I would love for Bruce to roll up his trousers, wade into the rock pool, retrieve the public trust doctrine and shake it off and take it to the High Court. This would unfortunately involve finding the chink in the legislative seawall <laughs> where the old doctrine might still apply. Unfortunately, this is very, very tricky. Courts must work with the legislation as it is in front of them. EDO ran a case recently, the Camberwell Common Trust, where land was set aside for community use since 1876. But due to a technical construction in our Crown, Crown Lands Law, it was still valid to revoke those commons and allow private mining. So what's the answer here if the state isn't standing up for the public interest? And EDO, we can only do so much with our hours in the day. What's the answer for Bruce and for all the people who care about the beautiful Australian beach? The answer is law reform. Clearly enshrine the public trust doctrine in laws to impose a duty on all levels of government to protect the beach for public good. This duty has to be supplemented by brave new laws such as resolving liabilities unambiguously, planned retreat where it's possible. It's not possible everywhere, but it has to be considered. Development control, no-go zones and so on. 
just in case I haven't flogged the metaphor quite enough, I'd just like to finish with a thought about the latest fleet of ships arriving with their green paper flying up the flag, with people like Abel Seaman Stokes aboard, there is an opportunity for law reform and to rewrite this standoff. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Rachel. <laughs> very, very powerfully put. Very well. <laughs> so there. <laughs> I'm not sure about this. I, I'm not sure about this. Abel Seaman. I thought it was more like <laughs> Lieutenant Commander or Dick, Captain. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, it's, I think those two presentations have really captured the particular problem that we have in dealing with this conflict between the the public interest and Rob has given that broad understanding of that and the particular difficulties we have in defending what might be seen to be in the public interest. I'm going to be very specific about beachy-type problems. Um, I'm not going to climb any tree or anything like that. I hope to avoid any rock pools. I'm going to stay on the sand, OK? Um, in th November 2002... Uh, and maybe a number of you were involved in this particular event. But in November 2002, 3,000 people uh, appeared on the beach of Collaroy Narrabeen. About a kilometre length of human chain appeared on the beach. Now, why were they there? Well, a coastal management plan had been prepared by Warringah Council, and in developing that plan recognising, as has happened in 1967 and 1974, that extreme storm events, not just a single event, but a number of events, had threatened property uh, along that June, which had been occupied by uh, different types of structures, including multi-storey units, the Marquesas, the flight deck, uh, and a number of, of, of houses. And those people appeared because back even in 1998, a storm event occurred. Uh, and during that storm event in, in the evening, it was a high tide in the evening, uh, a number of prominent people, including a politician from the area that Rob represents uh, and a, um, uh, a local mayor, uh, appeared with the local SES controller who happened to be a, I think he was a, a, one of the staff of Sydney University, not on the academic staff, and they decided that they would put rocks. But those rocks that they put on the beach during the course of that storm were not just ordinary rocks, they were building rubble rocks with ironmongery, and they were put between Stuart and Wetherill streets, supposedly on private property, because the beach Given the registration of title, the beach in between those streets was private. So that particular occurrence of 3,000 people occurred because Warringah Council wanted to build a properly designed seawall to cover that stretch of beach. But those 3,000 people said, no, we know that if you build a seawall on that particular beach, given the fact that you don't have a fortune anymore, you don't have a reservoir of sand to restore that beach, given that if you have a seawall, we're going to lose our beach. So we are going to be the human chain representing the beach. 
and we do not want a seawall. And they didn't get the seawall. But we've still got a lot of rubble on the beach uh, at, between Collaroy and Narrabeen, and we've still got gaps where there is no protection in that strip, particular strip. We haven't really got a proper plan for the management of that beach between Collaroy and, and, and Narrabeen. But we know that there will be subsequent events that will cause potential damage and loss of that beach and, and threats to those properties. We've had other examples, good examples. Back in the early 70s, we had cases where private property owners, feeling, as they did, the need to protect their properties during storms, felt the need not to put rocks on the beach because they didn't have access to rocks, but they had access to old wrecks of cars. So at Byron Bay and up on the Gold Coast, they had... The, they saw the need to protect their property. They felt imperative. They must protect their property from the imp impact of the sea. And the only thing they could get ha their handle on quickly to do it were these car bodies. And for years and years, those car bodies remained. And over the years, they've rusted away and some people have got cut walking along the beach. Now, that, those two examples the example of people forming that human chain to protect what they saw as the valued public asset, the beach, and the imperative that those landowners felt because nobody was helping them. They had to protect their private property by putting something on the beach. But by putting those things on the beach, that has caused long-term problems. Two other examples. This is the behaviour of councils now. In 1999, Manly was being affected by erosion. The south end of Manly, many of you know it, South Stain. The Manly Council was concerned about not the beach, believe it or not, but protection of the heritage seawall built in 1912. They weren't concerned about the beach, so they put rocks in front of the beach. Now, the engineers at the time who advised them said, this is the way to do it. Did Manly Council follow that process? No, they didn't. In the middle of the night, they got some broken up Hawkesbury sandstone, dumped it on the beach, and then ran tractors over the top of it and crushed it, and then covered it over with sand. First storm that came along, a lot of those rocks were dislodged and put into the surf. And I've got photographs of Manly Council staff going into the surf and pulling the rocks out. Right? A lot of rocks were subsequently removed by the council because of the public safety issue. Tweed Council, more recently, has done the same thing, quite contrary to this plethora of regulation and guidelines that you've made mention of. Tweed Council, using other provisions, particularly the natural disasters provision, have gone and placed rocks on the beach to protect the caravan park and the amenities block of the caravan park. You have great difficulty getting onto any sand in front of the beach at Kingscliff because Tweed Council saw that their priority was not the public beach but the caravan park, the public asset, which was the caravan park, just as Manly Council saw that their biggest responsibility was protecting the heritage seawall. 
So it's not just the private landowner who has, we have, have these problems with, and you can understand why the private landowner is seeking to want to protect his or her property. But the councils also have a similar dilemma facing them to protect what they see as their public asset, the seawall or the caravan park or the beach. We know the coastal processes are likely to cause change in shoreline position and have over geological time. That means that land on the coast and around our estuarine shores as well as on the open ocean coast is transient. So to have fixed land, as you would have somewhere else, away from the coast, except around the edges of our rivers, we don't have fixed land on, in the coast. And with climate change, sea level rise, more storm events, whatever, the likelihood is that there will be increasing changes in the impacts of storm events and sea level rise on shoreline position. So we can expect processes, coastal processes, to continue, maybe accelerated continue, impacts on our, on our shorelines. Now, the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency in 2009-2011 released reports looking at, in a very crude way, using a data, database, a national uh, uh, a database that the Geoscience Australia holds, looked at the potential economic impact of climate change on coastal infrastructure and residential properties and came up with a rough figure of around about $250 billion at risk by 2100, making certain assumptions. Now, that's all, it's all very crude, but it's all testable. Uh, it's testable in probability terms because you have, can use different sea levels and different scenarios. Like I said, with Rob's great work in 2003, you use a scenario approach, you can come and test some of these ideas. But you're looking into the future. The point being that we now have some idea of what's at risk in terms of built structures as well as the natural environment. What to do? Can we define in unambiguous terms what is in the public interest along our coast and what is important in terms of property that's owned by local councils, say, property that's owned by private landowners, what's important to protect? So what roads should we protect? In there is a village on the north coast called Iluka. Many of you have been there. The road to Iluka is at a very, very low level, is bordered by a national park, and that national park, in that national park, rocks have been put on the beach to protect the national park caravan park. But that road is in jeopardy, and Iluka could be cut off. So is it important in that particular case to look at a protective system? Now, the, in the United States, the public trust doctrine, as Rachel's pointed out, has been used very, very successfully at state level and has been supported federally through court cases that have gone through to the US Supreme Court. The state is seen as being responsible to hold in trust certain lands, waters and living resources for the benefit of future, current and future generations. Now, we've actually had one very interesting court case already in Australia on our shores 
which actually has used the public trust doctrine. It's an old case, but it's right here in Sydney at Cremorne. Because in 1895, there was a big development proposal by a London-based company to build a dock on Cremorne Point associated with an underground coal mine on Cremorne. And this led to... This was going through the mining courts until a member of parliament discovered it by accident, apparently, and raised the alarm. And the Dear Journal of Record, the Sydney Morning Herald, got hold of this and really started to make song and dance about this. And as a result, went to the courts, and as a result, the court ruled, held that in the public interest for a growing future population of Sydney, it was important to hold the foreshores of Cremorne in the public good. And so we have the beautiful foreshores of Cremorne. The flip side of that was that the coal interests thought, well, there is another part of Sydney where it's easy to get away with it. Let's go to Balmain and we'll put our coal mine down in Balmain, which they did. Now, in the US, the experience in the US goes back to applying these principles of public trust doctrine, which go be back before the Magna Carta. They go back to the 6th century Justinian principles, the Institutes of Justinian. And that, that clearly makes the point about trying to this clearly articulate what is important in the public good. So Oregon and Hawaii, for example, have in statute the need to hold in trust the beaches for the purposes of amenity and access. Florida has a constitutional requirement that it must have beaches. So when there was a recent court case that went all the way to the US Supreme Court, when some residents said, no, we don't care, our beaches can go, we will just have a seawall, our beaches can go, Florida government said, no, you've got to have a beach and we're going to nourish it, and they nourished the beach. So they gave the beach there because they held in trust the need to hold and have that beach. Texas has a standing act since 1959 to provide free and unfettered access to their beaches. In Australia, one state does have something that gives you some feel for protection of beaches, although it is still a little bit of a question mark, and particularly under the new government in Queensland, and that is the classic clause in their Coastal Management Act, which is land surrender, the land surrender clause. So when you map the erosion-prone areas in Queensland, if that's not already developed, in some cases it is, like the Gold Coast, where it's not developed, the owner must provide that land, that erosion-prone land, to the Crown without compensation. And the key to that is no compensation in that particular legislation. And that was a Joe Gielke-Peterson piece of legislation, by the way. Now, applying the public trust doctrine in Australia to resolve these conflicts and to help create more certainty, what can we do? Now, this is where reform comes in. And I think the Green Paper might provide us, because in this Green Paper... They, there is the possibility of having a new coastal policy. And in that, we could clearly articulate, not as a matter for consideration, the importance of our beaches and our fortunes, 
but to make it mandatory that we must protect our beaches. And by doing that, we're protecting the communities behind our beaches. We are providing in law that the development that's occurring behind our beaches by councils or by landowners must be subservient to protecting the beach. And that should be written in law. And that's really what the public trust doctrine is all about. It gives a priority. It gives a certainty. It's not a matter for consideration to be weighed up left and right. It's there in law. You are to protect the beaches. As is the case in Florida, if the beach goes, the state has to provide the sand by nourishment processes and bring it back. It has a duty to the public to provide the beach. Now, that's my presentation. I'm just going to ask my colleagues if we have any question of each other before I open it for more broader questions from the audience. Well, I, I just wanted to point to a, a, a point, Bruce, you raised in relation to nourishment. I agree with you. At the moment, our laws don't let us use offshore sand for the purpose of nourishing beaches. Uh, so, Do you think they should? Oh, I think there's some, I, I, yeah, I, th I think that's something we should definitely look at. I think uh, uh, the uh, consistent with that point of uh, of protecting the beach, which I agree with. I think actually one of the the fundamental points of Australian culture is that the beach is free. When people go to Europe, they're shocked that you have to pay to go to the beach. In Australia, going to the beach is free and it belongs to everyone. And it doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are or how good you look in a pair of Speedos. It, anyone can go down there and it belongs to all of us. And so if taking offshore sand for the purpose of protecting that asset, um, I think it's something we should look at. But you have in your electorate lost already beaches at, say, Sand Point there, near uh, Luca Road, right? Yep. So that's because landowners have grabbed it before you helpfully got the law changed to stop them doing it. <laughs> and so do you think the new planning system, as per the Green Paper, do you think that will provide a robust environmental assessment scheme so for beach nourishment that involves community consultation? Uh, I think... I, I think the well, I, I, of course, I, I think the um, the green paper is a great thing, but but I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I actually do. I think we've got the. Uh, I mean, it's certainly early days. It's a green paper, so it's there showing a blueprint, a direction that the government is thinking for, of. And please go and read it and comment back because this is going to uh, uh, fundamentally change the way in which we plan for the state for the next generation. The last planning act lasted for 30 years or more. This one will probably do the same thing. So it is important we get it right. But I think certainly, uh, I, I think the importance of putting ESD up front and centre as one of the objects of the Act is something I think is very important. Uh, and, uh, and also identifying that communities need to be consulted early and often, uh, because going back to that idea of you've got private property, you've got the public interest and you've got public participation, well, public participation is where 
governments actually figure out genuinely, well, what do the people want? Because ultimately that's what governments are there to do, is what the people want. Uh, so you need to get that process right from the start. Did someone write that down? Yeah. <laughs> State it's it's on the record. It's on the record. Just kidding. But, no, but I think it makes I'll sense. I'll be in trouble. No, it's not. It's a way. No, I mean, very impressive. We do want beaches. You've mentioned it. You know, it's part yeah. of our culture to have beaches, right? So, Bruce, do you think the law reform should be state level or do you think it's national? I think, given, as you pointed out, constitutionally, uh, it can only be in terms of, as I understand the law, it can only be at the state law. Mm -hmm. However, there can be intergovernmental agreements. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that came out uh, of the, the House of Representatives uh, Standing Committee on Environment report in, in 2009 was the importance of having intergovernmental agreements on many of these coastal issues. Uh, and I think that, that's, that's very important because we are confronting these same problems uh, in all the other states. And we don't have uh, in New South Wales quite the same difficulties that South Australia and Tasmania have with their shack policies. Now, those policies are separate to their environmental policies and give enormous power to those shack landowners because they've freeholded those lands. And a lot of those shacks are sitting right on the beach. And they're now crying out for government to go and build seawalls to protect them. That's mm. happening in South Australia and Tasmania. We don't have that quite that same dilemma. So there is some need to have some good... Uh, exchange. I, I love the land surrender clause in the, in the Queensland legislation. We tried sneakily, some of you might remember, some of you who are familiar with what I was trying to do in 2002 and amend the Coastal Protection Act. We tried to get that in to the mm -hmm. Coastal Protection Act uh, in 2002. Uh, we, we lost out uh, mm -hmm. in the, in the, through the parliamentary debate. But nevertheless, we tried. Uh, so I hope this time round there'll be sufficient input from uh, lots and lots of people who have interest in, in our natural environment, our beaches. I've got to say, though, Bruce, I, I don't think, and I don't think there would be public support for the idea of expropriating people's property without compensation. I don't think that's something that would necessarily be a particularly... I just think in the world of what's politically sensible, I, d I don't think that that would be something that yeah, would be... And that's supported. why we lost out in 2002. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, it was interesting that the Queenslanders got away with that, and they got away with it because they recognised the coastal hazard issue, and they also got away with it because of the costs. Now, we do have the powers under state law mm -hmm. to do that, uh, but not under federal law. Um, so all right. Anyway. So thank you all very, very much for coming tonight. Thank you.